0: Welcome to Sweat The Technique a podcast about what we learned running schools and how it just might be relevant in the rest of the world. My guest today is Robert Pondisio. He is the author of, among other things, How the Other Half Learns, Equity, Excellence, and the Battle Over School Choice, outstanding book in which Robert embedded himself for a year at success academies in New York City and shared what he learned. At first, I thought this was a book primarily about a network of schools and the rules that they lived by, but the more that I thought about it as I read, the more I realized it was about the story of parents and the relationship between parents and schools and what parents had the right to expect from schools. And so I I invited Robert on the show to talk a little bit more about parents and schools and their relationship. We started talking about how the other half learns and we ranged widely from there. But I found him insightful thinking about both where we've come from, in terms of what parents could expect from schools and ask from schools and how much parents could expect to shape the things that schools taught. And we also talked about the future of parents and schools. So here's Robert. Robert Pondisio. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. Nice to be here. So we're friends. This might be an awkward thing to say to you to start the podcast, but I legitimately think that your 2019 book, How the Other Half Learns, is one of the most important education books of the 21st century. It's in the early pantheon for me. I just found it incredibly profound. It really changed my mind about a lot of things. For those of you who haven't read it, Robert embedded himself at New York City's highly successful success academies for a year. It kind of describes life inside the schools and I guess when I first read it I thought it was sort of a portrait of success academies. I suppose that it is. But as I reflect on it back now it it stays with me as much or more as being a book about parents and schools. And I'm wondering if you think that's at all and if you think about it that way.
1: First of all, let me pay back the compliment, Doug. I knew your work before I knew you. And I remember when I first read Teach Like a Champion, what now seems like a long time ago, my, my biggest thought then was, damn, where was this book when I was a new teacher? This is exactly what I needed. So I've said this publicly and I'll embarrass you by saying it you know, to your face, as it were. I think when, when the history of, of this era of education reform, if you like, education practice is written when we're either in the home or below the ground, your work is the one that I think will define this era and that people will look back on and still use. So at the risk of, of turning this into a mutual admiration society, thank you for your work. Um, but I, I appreciate the question. And, and it's an interesting one because, you know, I, I've said to a number of people since the book came out that, you know, and maybe I've even said this in the book, that that when I walked into you know, Success Academy, Bronx One, literally across the street from where I'd been a student teacher in Mott Haven, the South Bronx, and, you know, a few blocks from where I taught fifth grade for many years, I, I expected to write a book about curriculum and instruction, because that's what that's what I usually write about. I write about classroom practice. And I surprised myself by writing a book almost by accident about culture, school culture. And, and parenting is absolutely central to that. So your point is well taken. It, it really does say something about the power of parenting. And, and frankly, to give Eva Moskowitz her, her proper credit, what it looks like when, when you build schools around the assumption that parents, in particular low-income parents have something to, to offer to, to, to bring to the party. I don't think I'm wrong to suggest that a lot of folks in our world Doug don't expect a lot from inner city black and brown parents right w- whether it's you know by, by design or by by default or, or worse frankly there's a little bit of a mindset of we don't expect them to be partners or, 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 or that worse partners is just a homily we don't actually mean it you know we, we say it to be brutally blunt about it I, I think you know I've said some this over the years, you know, the soft bigotry of low expectations didn't go away in our work. We just apply it to parents now instead of instead of children. And say what you will about Eva Moskowitz, that does not apply
0: to her work and to those schools. That is really true. And I should say that I'm a great admirer of, of Eva and her schools. I think it's interesting. When I started reading the book, one of the things that I thought the book was about was the question of whether success academies are so demanding of parents that, in effect, they introduce selection criteria into their schools and whether, you know, it wasn't whether they were de facto selecting parents by being so demanding of parents. One of the things I learned in the book is that they're both demanding of parents, but also you might say demanding for parents, you know, that they're demanding to protect something that they've promised to provide to parents. And in the end, I think the book becomes about, of course, they're selecting parents who are committed to education and want to work hard for their children's education And I think your question, is that so wrong? And why is that wrong? Is it wrong at all? In fact, isn't it a good thing? Do you mind just talking about that a little bit?
1: No, I, I think you, you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head, and 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 where where were you when I needed you. That's a great way to summarize uh, this. I wish I that's a turn <laughs> of phrase that I wish I'd thought. Um, if there's if there were a second edition, I'd put it in. But, you know, it, it, one of the reasons you know I, I I chose the title for the book, "How the Other Half Learns," was not merely to be and, you know, homage to mostly forgotten how the other half lives, but a lot of the assumptions that we make about parents, we just change our minds when it comes. To 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 low-income families of color in places like like the South Bronx. Um, so look, yeah, I, I mean, you know, one thing to be completely clear about, um, and I've never had this conversation with with Eva Moskowitz subsequent to the book coming out a few years ago, but uh, but I'm given to understand that she's not a fan of, in part, even though it is you know arguably quite you know supportive and a warm portrait of what they do. But I think she she's under the impression which i disagree with that oh it's all parents in other words your your point about parental selection is is a key one you know the the, the news as it were from this book was was hiding in plain sight by putting demands on parents by you know by by you know not just expecting but holding them accountable for you know reading to their children logging their, their their books every night you know showing up and showing up and showing up repeatedly during during the, the the intake process I think it's just dishonest to pretend that it doesn't does other than create a self-selection mechanism in other words if you are a single parent you know in an urban community who is you know barely keeping it together, It's just hard, if not impossible, to keep up with the logistical demands that that Success Academy places uh, upon parents. So so whether, you know, by by happenstance or design, you do end up with a with a, a student body in, in which it's just observable. You know, there's far far more two-parent families uh, than you see in, for example, the school where I taught a few blocks away, the Garden Variety, New York City Public School. A- and those parents, uh, and again, this is not data. This is reporting, observation. You just see a pattern. They are um, married, employed. Uh, religious and or spiritual. I can't tell you how many parents said, well, you know, I'd, I'd love to send my child to a private school or Catholic school if I had the money. And ambitious for their children.
0: And isn't that a good thing?
1: Well, well, these are all good things, right? Or, or at least none of them are bad things. But we assume that it's somehow cheating, right? In other words, if you create an opportunity for
0: these parents to self-select into a school where other parents share their value, that school is incredibly important and worth working for. <laughs> and, and this is this is
1: the point. You know, you and I do this um, reflexively, unremarkably, and it doesn't raise you know any any eyebrows at all. But along comes an Eva Moskowitz to create the same thing that you and I take for granted for low-income families of color, and now suddenly it's a crisis.
0: I think that's interesting, too, because it tells a really interesting story, which is there is some sort of self-selection engine happening there, but if you look at the data, it would be impossible for the self-selection itself to account for the incredible educational outcomes that that school achieves, right? There's clearly, there's an alchemy in those schools, which is when you get together people of, in this case, often limited means who are willing to work hard for something. But suddenly you have a school where incredible things are happening for students where, you know, you would have to select literally almost every kid who was in the New York City school system who was already, you know, performing at a high level to account for the numbers of kids who score advanced and proficient on the state exams at that school, right? It, it's 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 It would be impossible for selection effects to account for the academic outcomes in her schools.
1: I make precisely this point. I mean, first of all, there's you know, w- w- let's not bury the lead here. What's remarkable about Success Academy is not just the school that I was in, but those results are quite consistent uh, across a network of, I think, 40, 45 or, or more schools at this point. If they were a standalone school district in New York State, and they are certainly large enough to be one – they'd be, I think, a top 10 largest school district in in the state. They would be by a considerable margin the, the, the highest performing school district in, in New York City – or sorry, in New York State. And that includes places like, you know, Scarsdale or Jericho, Long Island, where, you know, the the, the average home is a million, well north of a million dollars, the kind of place that well-off folks move their kids to. So they have these kind of opportunities and Success Academy accomplishes this with, I believe, at least three out of four families being you know, at or below the poverty line, free and reduced lunch as, a, as as a proxy. So so this is precisely the point. If you want to make the claim that, oh, well, this is all just selection bias, this is all, or even if it's a self-selection engine, they're not picking the parents, the parents are picking them, well, then you still have to account for the fact that there are schools in New York City, the gifted and talented programs, that literally do handpick their kids, yeah. and they don't perform as well. So starting with that you know, that raising your hand and saying, no, I don't want just a charter school. I want a success academy. And yes, I'm willing to to, to meet these high demands and th- that they they place on me to partner with 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 my child's teachers, even accounting for that, they outperform every other school in the state by,
0: by a wide margin. So let me just tell you a little bit about where I'd love to go in the conversation. And I, I'm going to do that because I also want to make a little bit of a digression before we go there. But I think when we were, when you were writing the book, when we were talking about Choice and parents and parents' right to send their kids to good schools that help them accomplish their parents' dreams for them and their dreams for themselves. We imagine parent choice as primarily an academic phenomenon. Parents deserve access to good schools, and particularly some an issue that was most relevant for parents who didn't have the financial means to enact choice the way that most Americans do, which is they send their kids to a private school or they move to a suburban school and they they move to a wealthy school district. But I think over time, and maybe this is sort of the theme for this conversation, is I think parent conversation has shifted demonstrably. I know you've written about how at first you thought choice was just about academics, and increasingly you see it as about values and about being able to choose. You know, a a school is also, it's a social institution. It's the most universal social institution. It's it's, it's a tool for inculcating values and beliefs. And so I think, you know, a lot has changed since you wrote the book. So I want to sort of look at how parent-school interactions have changed and how choices change. But before we go there, I'm wondering if you could just tell the story of a couple of parents that you met. It's interesting that you said there are a lot of two-parent families and a lot of parents of faith. But I also remember you're writing about a parent who said, you know, school was a failure for me. Like I was lost and I got into, you know, I got into things that I shouldn't have gone into and I don't want that to happen to my children. Do you mind just telling the story of a couple of the parents that you spoke to? in the course of writing the book maybe some of the ones that you remember best. Yeah, uh, the,
1: the, the one you're referring to was the mother of a fourth grader who we spent a, a memorable morning at a coffee shop in the local hospital and, and she told me a rather gripping and moving story of her own childhood, where she had just been passed along and passed along and passed along, you know, the kind of stories, frankly, that I think, you know, you and I heard 20 years ago, and that probably motivated us to get into this work to begin with, you know, just, you know, the the unfairness of low expectations, pass people along and get get them out the door, you know, kind of schools that, that we, you know, that, that the schools that you and I prize rose up in, in response to. So yes, you do hear quite a few stories like that. What I wonder about, however, is, I mean, because if you think about this, you know, virtually everybody that you know, and I know in this work, it falls into kind of a type, right? You know, we were good at school. We were comfortable there. Uh, it worked out for us. So if you, if you, if you take that to your, your question to the next step, what is it about? And I think this is bracing, you know, it's lovely in a sense that there are still people out there for whom education was not the means to any end in their life, yet are still committed to it for their kids, Right. This is not the question you're asking, but it's something I just like to, to to mention. Think of what we owe those people. In other words, how many generations of school failure before those people rightfully give up and just say, "Look, you know, this is this didn't work out for me. This didn't work out for my mom or her mom, etc." So, you know, uh, what, I have no expectation that it's going to work out for for my child. So, so that to me is my bigger takeaway, rather than 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 any individual story, is how remarkable it is that there are so many people for who have no reasonable expectation of schools turning into any useful, you know, end in their child's life, yet they still believe. And they're willing to work. And they're willing to work for it. That's right. That's remarkable. And and shame on us if we don't look that square in the face and think we have a special obligation to families like that.
0: Right. If we call it cheating, when those families get the right to send themselves to schools, they'd expect a little bit more of them and of their children. Right. I think schools too readily overlook the difference between, you know, who who is the client? Who do we serve when we, when we're in schools, we always talk about how we serve students, but really we serve parents. And I think that's an important distinction because parents and students don't always want the same things from schools. You know, it's one of the, that is also one of the greatest traditions, you know, like when I was in school, I did not want to work hard. (laughs) I wanted to be socially accepted. I wanted to be cool. And that is certainly not what my parents wanted for me from school. Pretending that our job is to please students and give students what they want from school. In some ways, it's the most normal and natural and appropriate thing for parents to have higher expectations for their kids in school than the kids have for themselves or for for, to have different goals for their, their children than their Students themselves, because their students are fourteen, so of course they don't understand.
1: Yeah, that's very well observed, and we talk a lot in our work, and I'm sure you've discussed it as well about you know the the crisis in trust. In education, that that you know, parents don't trust teachers and schools the way they once did. I think that's overstated. It's, it's basically still there. But we never talk about it in the other direction, how little schools and teachers trust parents. I don't have this data at, at arm's length, but from memory, I think it's EdChoice does does polling on this on a fairly regular basis. And they ask teachers, you know, how much confidence do you have in this group of people? And then they list, you know, your fellow teachers, your administrator, policymakers, yada yada yada. Parents always end up at or near the bottom of. That list, which which says something remarkable, right? Because I think you're absolutely right. You know, and I've written elsewhere about, and I don't want—I'm not a teacher basher, as I think you know, Doug, but I do think that we are encouraged. As teachers, to forget what you just said—that we have a client—and and show me a teacher who you know who even uses that word—you know, parents are my client—but they probably should. In a different context, I've, I've mentioned the fact that you know when I when I became a teacher, and I could you know on the shelf behind me, I could pull out my master's portfolio and you know read you chapter and verse of how I had to demonstrate you know I was going to teach for social justice, I was going to be an agent of change. Nobody ever said to me, apropos of parents, what in retrospect, if I didn't need to hear this on day one, it certainly should have come up by the end of the first week, right? That, that stirring language in, in the Supreme Court decision of Pierce v. Society of Sisters, that the child is not the mere creature of the state. So somebody should have said to me, hey, Pondicio, these kids have parents. They are not your children. Those parents have ambitions for them. And you need to be humble, in a sense, you know, you need to think about about those parents because you're absolutely right, Doug, they are the clients. And, and when you think about the tremendous influence that we have as teachers over a captive audience of other people's children, to after that, then engage in that lack of trust, that indifference to what they want, to assume that we know best and that that they they they, they are not going to be of helpful. That the, the arrogance of that, when I when I think about it for more than a few seconds, just kind of stuns me. Because look, I'll, I'll be honest, I lived it, I walked it. You know, I think we all do. You know, w- when we come up through that route, we absolutely forget what. And again, to give Eva Moskowitz her her proper credits, we forget what she knows, which is that um, no, these these children do have parents and they have ambitions for them and we have a moral obligation to help them fulfill them
0: that's beautifully put so one of the reasons i I asked you on to chat is because it seems like the conversation has really shifted in the sort of five years since your book made the beautiful case for parents right to send their children to schools that took their education seriously and their right to be willing to sacrifice for that so they could have the best possible school and now I think you could, you know, you said to me in the lead up to this conversation that you think the biggest issue, the broadest issue is how much say parents should have over their kids' education, meaning both, you know, this is sort of the debate that's happening now. inside. Like how much say should parents have over what they learn and what they read and what values they get exposed to in schools? And that is a big journey in the conversation from where it was five years ago. And I was wondering if we could just stop and examine some of the Stations of the Cross and the moments that you think caused that change. Because it was really a fundamental... Change that's happening. Clearly, you would say that one of them is the pandemic. Yes.
1: Oh, no question. Much like BC and AD, I think you know future education historians are probably going to mark time in education by BP before pandemic and after pandemic. And look, you know, folks, if, if anybody's interested enough in education to be listening to to this podcast, I think they they the, the, the contours of this will be familiar to them, right? I mean, first of all, you take a in the case of public education, it's not fashionable among our set to, you know, to to view it as daycare, but come on, we have created the cultural habit of my kids have a place to go, you know, Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., like punching the clock, they got a place to go. When that bedrock public service becomes unavailable for, you know, vast stretches of time, you know, touching at least three school years... Well, then, people make new habits, you know, or, or when you can no longer rely on that thing, you, the the rest of your life doesn't change. You've still got to go to work. You've still got to put food on the table. You 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 need to figure out a solution. And the longer that that disruption goes on, the more likely those new habits are to stick. So then, that's that's one obvious thing right there. Then there was the phenomenon of Zoom school, you know, the, you know, which we all hated, but it did something remarkable. I mean, I, I mentioned before, I'm a curriculum and instruction guy. I had been working for years to try to get parents interested in what the heck their kids do all day. Well, now suddenly there was no mystery. It was on your kitchen table coming over the computer all day, every day. In many or most cases, it was a good reflection on the earnestness of teachers. And in some cases, it was like, wait a minute, what? Whether it was, you know, low energy, low expectation, you know, had some kind of, you know, performative political tinge to it, you know, for some subset of parents who was like, wait a minute, I'm not comfortable with what I'm seeing, you know, streaming over over my, my my laptop and you know, my kids sitting in front of every day. So there's there, there's that. So you know, in other words, the, 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 the longtime cultural habit that we had of one, sending our kid to school every day reliably, not worrying that much about whether it was their safety or or, or what values they were, you know, that they were being exposed to. In other words, the assumption that we all see the world the same way, and and you know this is this is fine. All of that became uh, what I call in play in a way that it has never been before. And, and look, it's important not to overstate the case. It's it's not like you know boxcar numbers of Americans are suddenly up in arms over their parents. You know, one of the most stable findings in in surveys is that. You know, parents think that, or Americans think that, public education is weak. But my child's teacher and my child's school are terrific. That is still mostly true. It's maybe not quite as robust as it was pre-pandemic, but it's still largely in place. But all of this is a preamble to say it doesn't take a lot of of discontent and disruption. To, to change habits, at, you know, at something approaching scale, so we're seeing homeschooling numbers I think tripling what they were pre-pandemic, and look, part of that may just be that. Again, what I, what I alluded to before, when, when when habits change, parents may realize, hey, you know what? This kind of flexibility, this whether it's virtual school or homeschooling, I like it. It's working. My kid is happy doing this. I'm going to keep doing it, or or whether it's you know d- discontent and I found another option, private school, you know, etc. It just changed the political temperature, um, and you have any number of states now. I think the the number is up to nine which are doing something which remarkably few people outside of our world are talking about. You know, places like Arizona and Arkansas and West Virginia, the state basically will now say to a parent who, who wants to go it alone, OK, here's you know, the vast majority of the money that your state was uh, that we were going to pay educating your child. Go figure it out on your own that's pretty remarkable and and the fact that you the, you went from like zero to you know six or ten states in, in about 18 months I don't think we fully reckoned um, you know the, just the disruption that that's going to wreak upon public education
0: I actually was not that aware so are you, the, these the states that you're talking about when a parent chooses to homeschool they refund some portion of the state tuition dollars to the parent directly
1: that's right that's right. Well, it's not necessarily for homeschooling. One of the critiques of this is, is that parents are taking the money and just applying, it's a de facto voucher that they're applying into private school tuition. One of the critiques that you hear all the time is, "Oh, this is this is just a subsidy for affluent parents, so they can pay private school tuition." And perhaps puckishly, whenever I hear this, I, I respond, "Good." <laughs> in other words, do we not care about every child in this country? Uh, you know, should it, should it matter to us? Or rather, blithely, do we just assume that well-off parents that that all is fine, and we only need to be concerned about you know l- low-income parents and, and and let me be clear, cool. I've never taught a, a well-off white kid in my life. I've, every child I've ever stood in front of as a teacher has been a low-income student of color in either South Bronx or Harlem. So forgive me for saying this. I don't need to be lectured to about being concerned about about those kids. But nowhere d- does does that mean that that I don't care about the 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 rest of the kids. You know, we socialize the cost of education in this country for a reason because we're making a literal investment in the outcome of every single child. So so the more salient question is not is this a subsidy for for you know well-off parents? Is it Is this a better way to to, to achieve the what we already agree is the goal, to educate every child well?
0: It's interesting. Just to rewind for a minute to you were sort of saying that one of the outcomes of the pandemic is that it forced parents to reckon with a decision that they made sort of by default, which is my, you know, off you go to school suddenly there was no school, parents had to come up with different solutions or glimpse things about the solution that they'd accepted and, and suddenly a lot of parents had questions about that. Did that also happen with students? I know you told me the story of a, of a young man that you know, you know, who lives near you, who said, I, I don't remember exactly the phrase used, but he said basically graduated high school, went on to college, but he's, you know, his takeaway was the pandemic demystified or... De- Delegitimize was his word. What did he mean by that?
1: Well, what he, what he meant by that, and I don't want to scoop myself because I'm working on a big, big piece about this right now, uh, and, and this- that anecdote will probably be in it. This was a young man who was a good student uh, here in my, you know, my, my local high school in in rural upstate New York, not f- not far from you. Who you know was a good, good student, ambitious for himself, wanted to go to college. And he described the phenomenon of Zoom school as simply delegitimizing. Again, his word, school. In other words, suddenly there were no expectations. He described aiming the camera at the ceiling and taking naps for you know entire year of math class and still getting a terrific grade, even though he literally did nothing. That's what he meant by delegitimizing it and and it was actually almost poignant i i had lunch with this young man the day before he left for college private Christian College here in upstate New York. This young man wants to be a minister. And he said, well, you know, if I, if I could get where I wanted to go without going to college, I wouldn't go. And, and I just contrasted that with my own experience. And I'll bet this is a lot of people's experience where, you know, if, if you had to be on campus in late August, you had the car packed by early July, right? You you, you were shopping all summer. This was the great adventure of your life. You were going to be out from under mom and dad's roof and living on campus and 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 finding yourself, finding your tribe, et cetera. It was almost like a forced march for this young man. I thought well that's 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 sad and let me be clear i you know i'm not worried about this kid when all is said and done because you know he's he knows his own mind he's going to be fine i've been spending a lot of time lately reporting on what happens to children kids like the ones that, that you and i used to teach for whom school is the one even if it's not a great institution it's the one stable institution in their life what happens when that goes away you know for a long period of time you know those are the kids that really give me sleepless nights.
0: Yeah. In a minute, I'm going to ask you for thoughts on what schools can do about this. <laughs> you know, like delegitimization of the entity in the eyes of some parents and some students is a really devastating thing, right? It, it's not just that you lose some students, but actually the students who stay with you interact differently with the organization. And, you know, if we're talking about the Stations of the Cross, the next one that I wanted to ask you about was, you know, schools are an institution, maybe the most intact, consistent institute, you know, you've pointed out that like, it, it's, it's the first institution that many young people interact with. And so it represents to them the role of institutions, public institutions in particular, in in their lives and in society. And schools are trying to operate now. And, you know, I think one of the other big changes, maybe, you know, maybe it's as a result of the pandemic, but maybe it's also, you know, result of other larger changes brought about by, who knows, social media, whatever, of, you know, increasing political polarization. One of the most significant social trends in the U.S. in the last five years is decline of faith in institutions. People don't trust institutions fully. And so they interact with them differently. And every school really is a collective action problem. You know, we started off talking about success academies, their collective action problem. And by socializing, Productive, positive, collective action from their parents, they are able to achieve remarkable things as an institution. And the flip side of that is when you can't do that, when it takes an incredible amount of work to get people to make the small sacrifices that everyone has to make to be a part of an institution, right? Everyone would like to be able to do whatever they want to at any time. And, you know, I'd like to say something really funny in the middle of the chemistry lesson that breaks up the entire class and makes everyone laugh. It's a fabulous fart joke that I want to tell. And part of being a part of an institution is I recognize that I can't do that and that I'm not allowed to do that because if we all agree that we're not going to do that, then we have chemistry class and then we can all aspire to become doctors. And if we, and if everyone gets to do whatever they want to, then we we're beholden to something less. It is much harder to sustain collective action now.
1: I joke ruefully that I I seem determined to be the skunk at every picnic that I go to, (laughs) including my own. So I'm, I'm a school choice guy, right? Did I mention I'm a school choice guy? Because I'm a school choice guy. I like school choice.
0: I'm starting to get the feeling that you're a school choice guy, Robert.
1: Get that, you get that idea because, you know, I, I, I like choice. There's a butt coming, right? So I worry, e- even though you know, this is one of those things where when the gods want to punish you, they answer your prayers. The trends we were discussing earlier about, you know, the, the rise of choice, you know, empowering parents to, to, to act in the best interest of their children – Ah, uh, to go it alone with public funds. These are all things that, if you told me, you know, five or ten years ago, hey, you're going to have, you know, eight or ten states uh, that will fund parents. You know, you know, as Cory DeAngelis likes to put it, you know, fund fund students, not systems. I'd have said, great, bring it. And I still mostly say that. But there's this little voice in the back of my head that says, huh, hold on a second. And let me be really, really clear here. I, I, I'm, I'm not shedding any tears for the days of, of schools like the one where I used to teach in where you know fewer than one in five kids were reading on grade level and we didn't really, you know, weren't that good at our jobs. You know, so in, in other words, if I have the power to give mom and dad the ability to to leave that school and seek out whether it's a success academy or something else that's going to serve the, 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 that child better, better. The last thing I'm going to do is stand in that child's way. God bless. Here's the, take the money and run. So that's good. Choice is good. But while I don't worry about what happens if the the, the cultural habit of schooling children in a quote, common school to use the Horace Man ideal, I don't worry about that You know, in, in retreat, but I worry about what happens when we lose the common school ideal. You know, to, to, to your point, if we are now going to be a nation where we all choose our own adventure, you teach it your way, I'll teach it my way, that could have real consequences. You know, and as, as I think you know, I'm an unabashed E.D. Hirsch core knowledge, cultural literacy guy. That That's my flavor of education. His work has informed everything I've done since, you know, my first day at PS 277 in the South Bronx. His work is, to my mind, the last, the, the, the first and last word in equity. Well, even though we have not been good at delivering on that, I worry what happens when we lose our appetite for that. In other words, do we become more polarized? Do we lose the, the, the literal common language that we have? The same sets of allusions and idiomatic language, on and on and on. Do we literally become a, a, a people who can no longer understand each other because we are all, again, choosing our own adventure? I, I think this raises the bar for those of us who are choice advocates to kind of, you know, kind of talk some of our our, our fellow choice um, enthusiasts off the ledge, in a sense, and say, hey, look, you know, we socialize the cost of education in this country for a reason. We really have an obligation to every child. And, and while it might be a, a, a release valve to say you do it your way, I'll do it mine. We still have to, you know, come together at some level as a nation and and reach some agreement about what kids need to know, and the level of proficiency that they need to be uh, a productive citizen. And you know, I'm, I'm I'm a fan of homeschooling too, but we've got to you know make sure that kids get the broad societal inputs they need to be not just educated members of society, but I'll, I'll say it, patriotic and affectionate members of society, that they value our institutions, that they value the rule of law and, and, and whatnot. In other words, there, there's a bit of a free rider problem, I think, or there, there could be a bit of a free rider problem. In other words, we assume that social cohesion is a given. You know, and I don't. I'm not ready to 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 concede the point. I think we need to cultivate it in in whatever form of of, of education replaces the 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 quickly retreating public schools.
0: I'm going to try and say back to you a version of what I just uh, I think you just said to me, which is there's this terrible tension, this terrible paradox that schools face, which is. There's less and less consensus about what it means to, let's just take it from a social studies and history perspective, what it means to live in this country and is, you know, is this country fundamentally good or fundamentally bad? Mm -hmm. To some degree, schools make a choice in how they present that story to the children in their school. Parents care a lot more about how that choice is made. And there are probably a lot more consequences because there's so much more division on the on the issue now. So one solution to that would be, well, great. There's gonna be one school that tells the story that the nation is fundamentally against you and it's designed to oppress people. And there can be another school that tells the story that the nation is fundamentally good and is designed to give people opportunity. And we'll just choose which school we wanna send our children to. And that the benefit of doing that is it makes it a lot easier to run an effective school when some percentage of your time is not spent at board meetings arguing over, you know, which books and what's in the curriculum and all those things are distraction from the core work of schools of educating children, which they struggle to do anyway. So it seems like that would be a solution you're saying, but the risk is then we just increase polarization. And then we have, you know, two separate common schools, two separate nations in the same country. And we've this notion of, of commonality that we grow up with a set of beliefs that we hold and share and can talk about that that is eroded by the practical solution. Is that a fair summary? And if so... What do we do about it?
1: Yeah, and, and let me be clear. I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have an answer. I, I have a concern. Yeah. You know, and, and, and in other words, I've, I've heard a lot of folks on the choice side say, "Look, the solution to to wokeness, uh, to use the phrase, is choice." Uh, this this phenomenon. You know, you, you you teach it your way. I'll teach it mine. There's two problems with that. One is is everybody who feels you know uh, one way leaves. Well, then you're concentrating the effects of the thing that you don't like by leaving. In other words, there's no there's no counterbalancing. Now everybody else in in the, in the public school you leave behind has the same you know kind of ideas and, and and you
0: normalize right it will polarize the two conversations even more well
1: that's right that's right and I guess you know I'm guilty of putting on my my hat as a former civics teacher as well and saying well hold on a second isn't one of the things we're trying to do in schools to teach kids the habits of productive disagreements you know and debate and whatnot and when everybody agrees that opportunity is lost but look and and I don't, I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna look I, I'm an unabashed Patriotic American. Period. Full stop. Um, I became a teacher not to tear anything down, but because I recognized, you know, the the unfairness that was not working well for far too many of America's children. But but no no impulse was burn it all down, and I haven't you know changed my mind about that one iota. So I do worry that that we are uh, put it differently. It's weird, right? You know, as as I've said a couple of times now, we socialize the cost of educating America's children. Uh, The assumption, correct me if you disagree, Doug, is that by creating these institutions called schools, by making that literal investment in our children, we are right seeking to attach them to their community, their country, to, to create, the opportunity for them to you know to to advance to make the most of their talents stand on their own two feet and and pass it along to their children so it's just a little bit weird uh, you know and again I, I want to be clear I'm, I'm not suggesting a rose-colored vision of, of American history and society um, you know a, a healthy and a good education should be warts and all but it's a little bit strange the degree to which fashionable opinion education views a kind of a responsibility to to be so you know, not just warts and all, but just warts you know that's a strange business for a publicly educated school to be in you know to think that its job is to be in essence oppositional to the the, the goal of attaching children to, to to civil society i have to believe that there, there's room to be both clear-eyed and cultivate affection for this country and its principles. But but I, I feel like sometimes we're, we're, we're in danger of losing sight of that. It's a, it's a weird business to think that the public should support us in doing nothing but critiquing this country.
0: As you were talking, I was thinking a little bit about some other countries because they have similar, similar England, a similar political climate, maybe not as pronounced as our own. One of the many differences between their school system and our school system is that within the public school system, there are Catholic schools. There are different. There are different types of schools. Same in, you know, like the Netherlands, you can send your child to within the state. Yes, it's a religious school, but really it's a school that is being clear about the the fundamental ethos that that it expresses. There's there's a transparency implicit in that because when you say Catholic school, you have a pretty good idea of like, it's a longstanding tradition of, of what those values mean. And ironically, our tradition of separation of church and state makes that much harder to do in this country. But I also think that, you know, I suspect that teachers in the UK would say I don't find it particularly divisive for the UK generally to be able to have a Catholic school that has a clear sense of, you know, the values that we're trying to teach. And just wondering if you want to weigh in on that at all.
1: Well, the the, the person you should have on your podcast, if you have not already... Is my friend Ashley Burner, who's uh, at Johns Hopkins University, who wrote a book within the last decade, which which really kind of opened my eyes. If you would ask me until reading her book whether or not the way we educate children in America is more or less the way everybody does it. In other words, is these things called public schools that you know that that are that are government run and government funded, and the vast majority of kids att- attend those. I'd say yeah, that's probably the way everybody does it. No, we are the outlier. Her book from ten years ago, I think, it was called No One Way to school. What you just described, um, she, she, she calls, you know, educational pluralism. And I think in the Netherlands, uh, if, uh, there was something like 40 different flavors of schools in, in England, there's a dozen or more. Yeah. They all have a national curriculum. And that's the critical thing. In other words, yeah, you, you teach it your way, I teach it my way, but we're teaching the same thing. You know, we're teaching the same body of knowledge, as it were, you know, and, and, and we can't do it that way in this country. It has nothing to do with our, our, our separation of church and state. It has everything to do with that pesky little thing called the U.S. Constitution, which prevents us from, ha- from having a national curriculum. Remember the you know the, the the battles we had over Common Core you know within the last decade and that wasn't even a curriculum that was just standards but people assumed it was a curriculum and that you know every child in the country would be you know the it, it's nine oh one a.m. we're all doing you know the three branches of government right now you know it just this cartoon sprang up around you know the idea of standards you know which which I won't belabor you with with, with this I'm sure our, our our listeners understand the difference between standards and curriculum but when you just didn't even try to establish a curriculum but just curriculum standards there was an immune response to that. So even if you tried to do this on a voluntary basis it would it would absolutely be rejected like a baboon liver. Um, but that's a that's a fixed condition in places like the Netherlands and the and, and England and in most other uh, other countries on the planet.
0: So fighting or arguing is expensive from an <laughs> execution standpoint in, in the you could argue the most important institution in the country like we spend a lot of our time and energy and focus. Arguing instead of executing. But the primary solution that other similar countries have come up with is not accessible to us. Are there any practical solutions that you're aware of that you can think of things that you'd at least want to, you know, try?
1: Well, I mean, look, the, the reason I'm a choice guy is because I do think that if we knew how to solve these problems in the traditional public education system, we'd have solved them by now. You know, and, and that sounds dour and I don't I don't mean it to, but come on, folks, how many more generations of kids like the ones that I taught in, in the Bronx and my kids are now, my, my, my former students now have children in the very school that I taught at 20 years ago. I'm sure you've seen the same thing. How many more generations of, oh, we're working on it, send more money, schools are still underfunded, on and on and on before you say, you know what, let's just try something anything different.
0: Well, wealthy parents lasted about three weeks of that during pandemic before they were like, well, I'm not willing to make that sacrifice with my own child, right? And yet the argument is, yeah, but poor people should be willing to, she should be willing to take one for the team until we figure this out.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, like, you know, you, we, we started this conversation w- with you saying very nice things about my book and I appreciate that.
0: I'm taking them all back.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I'll go back to it. There is a character in the book that is not a, a, a huge character. I mean, she, she, she appears briefly in the beginning And in the end, but as as I say, she haunts it like a, like a ghost. And it's a young lady named Tiffany, who was a real fifth grader that I taught in my, I think, second year at PS 277 in the South Bronx. And every teacher knows a kid like this. At least every teacher who has worked in a, in a dysfunctional or low performing school knows this kid. She comes to school every day. She's got her homework done. uh, She's on you every minute of the day. She, she never misses a day of school, never misses an assignment. Yeah. I used to joke that if I gave her an assignment to knock down the building with her forehead, you know, that I'd come in the next day and find her smashing her head against the wall and and just saying, give me more time. I got this. In other words, it would not have occurred to her that it was a ridiculous complaint. She was so bought into her education, into school, that an adult asked her to do it. She's on it. So she was in my class in a fairly chaotic school years before Eva Moskowitz opened the first Success Academy, you know, in, in, in New York City. But in retrospect, she was a Success Academy kid from casting. Deeply bought in, parents deeply bought in. If if a charter school had existed when she was in my class, she'd have been one of the first out the door. And God bless, she should have been. And, and I tell the story in the book about, you know, th- th- that I describe kids like this as a not your problem child, because when I pointed out to my special ed supervisor that, hey, I've got this kid, Tiffany, I'm not doing anything for her. She literally said to me, she's not your problem. Meaning she was getting, you know, double threes, as we like to say. She was on grade level. And if you remember in the early aughts, Doug, like that was that was not a prize. You know, I had kids who were counting on their fingers and getting fours on their math tests, let alone threes. But by the standards of what we were supposed to deliver as as, as an institution, as
0: teachers, you've got a kid who's on, on grade level math and reading. How little we expected for Tiffany, for all of her work and all of her effort. How little, she got back.
1: That's exactly right. Who says that to me about my children? Who says that to you about your children? Why are you worried about this kid? She's not your problem, you know. So, so you know. Th- th- in other words, if we create the opportunity for the tiffany's of the world to, to take full advantage of their gifts, their drive, their bought-inness, well, good. That's a good thing. Does that solve the larger problem? It does not. And, and, and I think we have to be, you know, candid about that because I think there's a lot of rhetoric in, in the choice and charter world that, oh, you know, the kid goes in this door, bad outcome, that, that that door, good outcome. It's a lot more complicated than that, as I know you know, but let's at least start by creating the opportunities for the Tiffany's of the world to take full advantage of their gifts and ambition.
0: My guest has been Robert Pondisio, and our topic has been the changing role of parents and their relationship with schools. And his most recent book is How the Other Half Learns. Thanks, Robert. That was great. Thank you, Doug. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at at the Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.